Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Tom Secker, as always, welcome, welcome back to Fortress on a Hill. Thanks for having me. It's always good to be talking to you guys. So today we are going to take some time and talk about the Amazon original series, Jack Ryan. Um, it's in it. It just released its uh, second season this year. Um, I saw this morning in the news that it is now the most watched Amazon Prime series that has happened so far. So it's obviously very, very popular with, uh, with people. But uh, as we're about to, to discuss at some length, it is uh, quite problematic in a lot of different areas. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the first season, I think, was Amazon's most watched original series. Um, I hadn't seen that story from today. But yeah, it doesn't surprise me. It is They've spent a huge amount of money promoting it and trying to turn it into the kind of like the premiere TV show that's on Amazon. It's kind of their signature show to try and, you know, bring in new viewers and all of that. Yeah. So, yeah. First, I'm going to play a little clip from the first episode for you guys. Strategic bombers arrived in Venezuela this week. The Venezuelan crisis has entered a new phase. If Russia continues talks about these undetectable missiles, China will likely feel threatened. It's been reported that China has up to 300 nuclear warheads. The CIA strongly believes North Korea has accumulated enough nuclear material to create one or possibly two weapons. So, the question will always be, with what lens are you watching the news? Let's say you just got home from work, you get through the door, you turn on the TV, and that's what you see. What would you assume is the most major threat on the world stage? Anybody, just call it out. You don't have to raise your hand. Definitely Russia. Definitely Russia. That's confident. I like it. Who says Russia? Anybody agree with her? Hands? Okay. Great. Who else? China. Stop yelling at me, but China is a good answer. Anybody? Who else? China? North Korea. North Korea. Any North Korea takers? And uh, Venezuela? Anybody? No? Oh, yeah. One guy in the back. A little worried about Venezuela. Everybody's cool with Venezuela? No threat? Okay. Let me ask you this. Which one of these places can claim to have the largest oil deposit on the planet? More than Saudi? More than Iran? Wow. Okay. What about things like gold? More than all the mines in Africa combined? The fact is that Venezuela is arguably the single greatest resource of oil and minerals on the planet. So, why is this country in the midst of one of the greatest humanitarian crises in modern history? Let's meet President Nicolas Reyes. After rising to power on a wave of nationalist pride, in a mere six years, this guy has crippled the national economy by half. He has raised the poverty rate by almost 400%. Luckily for the rest of us, 
he's up for re-election. So, who's running against him? This is Gloria Binalde. Now, Gloria is a history professor turned activist. She's running against him on a social justice platform and on the strength of, in my humble opinion, just not being an asshole. <laughs> Analyst predictions, as of today, have the chances of Venezuela's total economic collapse at 87%. On the news, they'll call it a crisis. But on the world stage, they'll call it a failed state. If you've never heard that term, other examples of a failed state in recent history are Yemen, Iraq, and Syria. And if that's not bad enough news for you, well, Venezuela is also the only one of these places within 30-minute range from the U.S. of next-gen nuclear missiles. You will not hear about any of this on the news because the biggest players on the world stage do not want you to. To them, unstable governments are nothing more than the greatest of opportunities. So Russia, China can never be the most major threat until countries like Venezuela leave the door open to our very own backyard. So, well, I'm, I'm terrified. I mean, I, I, I'm scared. I, I think, uh, we should probably get a war powers resolution because that's, that's frightening. They've sold me. <laughs> yeah. And this was, and this was in the first 10 minutes of the very first episode of the season. Um, and it, it, I, I almost, I was already ready to throw up in my mouth a little bit. It was just like, this is just so disgusting. There's no attempting to parse about what is actually happening in Venezuela, that it's not all, uh, you know, fictional President Reyes's or real President Maduro's fault, that there are specific things on that world stage that Krasinski keeps wanting to mention that have allowed this to happen. Well, and no mention of, of like, America's involvement in that. Not, I mean, like, historically, but also just the fact that, like, you know, he mentioned right there, oh, they have the most oil and all this gold. And it's like, of course, American companies want to get in there. That's why we've intervened in Latin America for, like, ever, is because of resources. And they don't, yeah, I also felt really disgusted because this was, like, it, it just, to me, it signified they're making a drastic shift from season one where I felt like they actually attempted to humanize the antagonist, you know, and show his backstory, why he was who he was. And then this guy, we just get a very one-dimensional bad guy, quote-unquote, that we're supposed to dislike here in the first 10 minutes. Sounds like I a would, Bond villain. I, I would slightly disagree in that I always found the antagonists in season one pretty cartoonish anyway. But I know what you mean. At least there was some kind of narrative about them. There was some kind of sense of motivation or who these people were or why it was they were doing the things that they were doing. Whereas with yeah. this, it's just, oh, Nicholas Reyes, he's an evil dictator and he's ruining the country and that's the end of it. There's no, <laughs> you know, like you say, it's, it's not only is it lacking all context and realism, it also just isn't particularly well written. Yeah, um, it's so one-sided and ugh. Well, and, and just like headlines blaring at you. Mm -hmm. The first season had some degree of sophistication in its propaganda. The second season, not so much. And I did also feel the interesting, the most interesting line in that whole lecture that he does there um, is when he goes, fortunately for the rest of us, he's up for re-election. And it's like, no, no, surely it should be sh fortunately for the Venezuelan people, they've got an opportunity to get rid of this guy and vote someone else in. 
But he's saying, oh, no, no, it's, it's good for the rest of us that he's a reaction, which sets up the whole narrative of season two, which is about the CIA interfering in the Venezuelan election. He's kind of, you know, signposting that from, from day one, that, oh, it's actually a good thing when the CIA goes into Latin America and starts met messing in elections and overthrowing governments and so on, because, you know, otherwise we get people like this. When, of course, in reality, it's because the CIA goes into Latin America and does this so often that we get people like Reyes. Yeah, was... yeah I mean, as the historian in the group, I mean, it is really perennially disturbing when all context is removed from the current state of affairs. And the American government and even most of the American people and then, of course, media entertainment or just straight up entertainment like this show have a tendency to treat every single country and every single international situation uh, as though it occurred in a vacuum, you know, as though history began yesterday. I mean, if you listen to Jack Ryan, right, if you listen to his speech there, I mean, you could believe that history began yesterday. There's, there's no sense of, well, why is it this way? Why was this guy originally elected? Or, you know, what, what went on? You know, what role did the CIA play here previously? Uh, what role did Spanish colonialism play? I mean, this, there's really important stuff. The lack of nuance is probably, and, and you know more about this than me, Tom, but like, it's almost like when these corporations, you know, produce these movies and shows. I, I always like to like imagine that there's like a, a super like loquacious dork like me in the room who's like trying to inject nuance and like cool, like useful, interesting stuff into the script. And then there's also like an evil guy with like a gavel who's always like, <laughs> no, the American people will not enjoy that. They will not enjoy that. We have to make it more simple. And like all the cool nuance stuff gets like sliced away. That's like my dream. That's like my imagination. But I mean, does any of that exist or do they not even attempt that from the start? I mean, I, I fear it might be the latter. I don't know. I think in this particular case, we're talking about a showrunner and a lead writer who are relatively intelligent people. They're not dummies. They're not uncreative. And I think the first season is actually a pretty good example of that. It's, it's actually one of the better spy series that I've watched recently, believe it or not. I think with this season, though, there's probably two major factors at play, to my mind. The first is Amazon themselves. They realized with the first season, oh, we've got a hit on our hands. So let's dumb it down and make it ever more accessible for a mass audience. And so, yeah, there are people sat in the room saying, no, 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 we can't do that. We can't include things like nuance or sophistication it has to be you know plain and simple villain and we want to see him overthrown and we see our heroes overthrow him and so any notion of actually creating a sophisticated villain or a, a backstory that means something in the real world even if that was there will have got stripped away in the name of making the show more popular and therefore more commercially successful and a, a more valuable asset for amazon ultimately i guess the other factor is that it's clear from season one that they were setting it up that season two would take place in Russia. At the end of season one, Jim Greer, Ryan's boss, gets posted off to Moscow, head of station in Moscow. And there's a bunch of other little quips and bits in the dialogue where they're talking about Russia. And there's even a, a strange reference to uh, the, the Soviet-Chechen war, which never actually happened. There never was a Soviet-Chechen war. So, you know, they were clearly kind of trailing this sort of neo-Cold War kind of narrative for season two and somewhere along the line they made this radical switch and said oh no no it's got to be about venezuela and some kind of coup or revolution in venezuela and i imagine that is something that came from their discussions with the cia because 
as I demonstrated, I think, quite amply in my video, the CIA were all over this. They were deeply, deeply involved in shaping not just the Jack Ryan character, but the narrative of, of the arc of season one and season two. And so I'm guessing it came from them that when they went to the CIA and said, oh, well, you know, there's every, every spy show and film out there at the moment is doing Russia. So is there something perhaps a little different that you'd suggest to us? They said Venezuela. And so they had to cobble together this rather slipshod, not particularly well executed story about the CIA involvement in Latin America, which in, if you think about it is kind of a <laughs> it's a difficult one to do anything with because most people are either completely ignorant of that topic or the ones who know about it realize, oh, right, this is how we got Pinochet. This is how we got Castillo Armas in Guatemala. This is why they, they're, you know, over 600 ways to kill Castro. That's the real history of the CIA in Latin America. And so taking that on as a topic for a mainstream populist spy show, I do think was a bit risky. And I don't think they got it right at all. I think this is not only bad from a real-world propaganda perspective, this is also just kind of badly made. It's badly executed, badly carried out, in my opinion. Do you think it's interesting, is there anything to be said about the arc of the old Jack Ryan film series, right? Because we start with Hunt for Red October, no? And that's Soviet, right? Mm -hmm. But then the films sort of try to track relevance skills to me. So, you know, that movie is made like at the very tail end of Cold War, you know, of the Cold War mattering. Mm -hmm. And then the second one, Patriot Games, it's like, well, we need a villain, but like the Soviets aren't a good villain anymore because, you know, Glasnost, you know, Gorbachev, wall came down. So like, what are we going to do? Well, we need like an anodyne terrorist, but we don't want to like insult anybody. So what do we do? We pick the IRA, but we can't really pick the regular IRA because well, there's a lot of Irish Americans who support them, and most of their money and guns come from America traditionally. So we have to make it like an offshoot splinter group. But you know that doesn't really work, and there's there's a total lack of context of why these guys would want to really kill British royalty. And then in the third one, they do go right precisely to where we're going here. I think it's Colombia, right? Or yeah. and it's the drug lords. So it's like yeah, it's yeah, almost yeah. like the series. The series is trying to track whatever the relevant thing was, because when that movie comes out, and I don't remember the year, you might. You know, this is like the height of like the Clinton era. General McCaffrey is the drug czar, you know, Green Berets all around Latin America, allegedly, because we're trying to stop the flow of drugs. And, you know, we haven't gotten a new enemy yet because 9-11 hasn't happened. And it just seems to me that like the Jack Ryan series does seem to track or attempt to track, sometimes very clumsily, I think, in the case of Patriot Games and in the case of this one, whatever they deem or the CIA advisors deem to be like the relevant story of the day. Am I on to anything there? Uh, to a certain extent, because you've got to remember there are, I don't know, maybe at least a dozen Jack Ryan novels that Tom Clancy wrote, and only four of them got made into films. But I think one of the reasons why they picked the ones they did, or at least why the ones that they developed actually ended up going into production, um, was partly because they felt there's some kind of relevance here, there's some kind of political relevance that will get people in to watch this because it feels like a movie that's about something a bit more than I don't know whatever the hell they were making in the 1990s Jurassic Park um, <laughs> that's a bad example because Jurassic Park is great but you know you, you know what I mean it's yeah there's they wanted to offer audiences something a little bit more meaty and so like you say they had to pick the storylines that in some way wove into real world events because that's also partly the attraction of Pansy in the first place is that his fiction filled in a lot of blanks for people 
or at least they felt it did in terms of what's actually going on in the cold war and in you know covert operations in latin america and so on and so yeah yeah clear and present danger uh, was 94 uh, mm-hmm. the sum of all fears is 2002 so right at the beginning of the post 9-11 war on terror and in that one actually interestingly in the original novel um the terrorists are islamic fanatics but there is also by changing that they also left out the most kind of interesting and I, I don't know, good idea in the novel of Some of All Fears, which is that they resolve the Israel-Palestine conflict. They right. find a sort of political, peaceful resolution to that. But because they stripped out the Muslim villains and replaced them with, I don't know, some generic East European, I don't even know who the hell they are. Um, it was like Russian, it was Russian military uh, separatists, like na- ethno-nationalists, super-nationalists. Uh, okay, right, right, that makes sense. <laughs> Um, yeah, because they're really known for their nuclear terrorism. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, although I guess who is known for nuclear terrorism? Um, this never happened. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah, I do think there is certainly something with the films about them trying desperately to be relevant. And again, as I tried to point out in my video, the producers of this Jack Ryan series, part of the whole reason for rebooting it, in their own words was to try and reassert the positive image and and burnish the reputation of the military and intelligence agencies at a time when they were suffering from criticism from, you know, the many, many scandals of the war on terror, whether it's the intelligence over Iraq, the drone program, the torture program, or any one of half a dozen other things that we could mention. I think they were very much trying to make this show as a kind of antidote to all of that. And in the first season, I think they did that very well. And in the second season, I really, really don't. But that was certainly their intention. Uh, I found it interesting that John Krasinski, in in the huge media blitz for putting out this season, he had mentioned that he has 11 close relatives, brothers, sisters, cousins, and stuff who served in the in the military. But he also mentioned that he was a huge spy geek, that it was, you know, Tom Clancy type stuff was was what he grew up on. And so in, in mentioning there, you know, the, the filling in the blanks, that for him, you know, all these blanks were filled in a very long time ago. So, you know, not only are they creating the series that is nowhere near reality, but they have someone who has already bought into their way of thinking about it beyond being just the actor yeah (laughs) well it's funny because i like when i was younger i was like a big tom clancy fan like i read a lot of his books and a lot of the jack ryan series and stuff and then it was funny to me when i actually went into the intelligence community and i started to see like well i I didn't like buy into it beforehand but i was i I thought it was really interesting because that was my only um exposure to it right was to these the things that we get from media and i feel like that's most americans perspective of the intelligence community is, you know, the things that we get from media because there's a lot of people who've been in the community don't really want to talk about it other than to continue to support, you know, the established narrative. So it was really interesting to me, though, to have to, like, reconcile. And I I recently, like, rewatched Clear and Present Danger and uh, before I'd watched the second season. And I was just, it's just so frustrating, though, because at least in that one, in Clear and Present Danger, you know, there's this whole other side plot about this, the CIA deputy director who puts the American soldiers on the ground, and Jack Ryan is opposed to that. You know, his whole thing is, like, in opposition to Americans getting involved, whereas this season is all, oh, we're going to work with these people, and, like, we have to do this because this is what's best for the country or whatever. 
more of American arrogance asserting itself on other people's countries. And I, that was a really interesting divergence, I felt, because there was a lot of similarities between Claire and Cousin Major and this second season. Oh, yeah. And so I thought it was really interesting that they had decided to, like, but they cut out to me what, what was the one thing that was, like, kind of antithetical to the CIA in Clear and Present Danger, and they just made it be part of the, of the narrative here. And I, I, that also was just another thing to kind of be like, well, this season is really just, like, propaganda. The one thing I'd point out about Clear and Present Danger, or at least my way of simple way of interpreting that film's uh, propaganda role is that it was some kind of response to a whole string of films that are rather obviously about the Iran-Contra affair, the Iran-Contra conspiracy, that there was, a, I don't know, maybe half a dozen, maybe more actually, um, movies that are explicitly about, you know, the CIA and other government agencies being involved in the drugs trade in order to fund black operations. And so then you get Clear and Present Danger coming out where they invert that narrative, where instead of the CIA are so desperate to carry out black operations that they got involved in massive scale drug trafficking, it's that the CIA are so desperate to stop the massive scale drug trafficking <laughs> that they embark on these, as a Pentagon memo calls it, super black operations. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually how they respond. The first time they saw the script, they said they, that's what they called this, you know, mission to send in the special forces to go and they're like blowing up drugs planes and assassinating people and trying to destroy this drug cartel. But yeah, yeah, they're inverting the real narrative of these films about Iran-Contra in a film that is much, much higher budget and higher profile. I mean, most of these other more truthful films are kind of B-movies, really. They're not particularly great or particularly high production value movies, although some of them are pretty good. So that's the role I see Clear and Present Danger playing, but I know what you mean. At least you have an evil national security advisor and an evil deputy director of the CIA. In this Jack Ryan, it's like everyone in the CIA pretty much is perfect, or at least mm -hmm. a good person. There's no notion of internal corruption. In as much as there is internal corruption, it's some evil CEO and there's some British mercenary firm who are somehow vaguely involved in this incredibly complex conspiracy that never actually makes any sense in season two but somehow also involves the president of venezuela for some reason but you know what i mean everyone who works for the cia is a good person and particularly yeah. in season one the thing that i noticed is okay they do have a bunch of different muslim characters but most of them are pretty horrible people and the only ones really that are depicted in any detail as good people are Jim Greer, who works for the CIA, and the terrorist's wife, who abandons him, who leaves him and runs off, and she effectively becomes a CIA asset. Mm -hmm. So it's like, that's your choice if you're a Muslim, is either to be some kind of terrorist or people smuggler or whatever, or go work for the CIA. <laughs> Surely there are lots of Muslims in the world who are neither those things. <laughs> You yes. know what I mean? It presents this really dumb binary opposition, the good and evil, good Muslim, bad Muslim. And, you know, the world is so much more complex than that. And, and even season one lacked quite a lot of nuance in that respect. But yeah, season two is just sort of banging you over the head. It's a good thing the CIA are in Latin America. And, and, and somehow they're supporting the social justice candidate? What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. What, what right, the, isn't this the, the same show is how they're seeing it, yeah. Isn't this, this, I mean, and we're talking about the same CIA in the same country that literally like trained and implemented proxy right-wing militias that were murdering nuns and priests who were social 
justice activists in Central America throughout the 1980s. I mean, literally. I mean, it's we've always been always exclusively on the side of the more neoliberal, hyper-capitalist, right-wing authoritarian, free market wing of the Latin American republics and Caribbean republics. I mean, that, 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 I mean it's just so ahistorical that we would somehow back the social justice candidate. It, it, it's ludicrous. I think the one exception might be Noriega, but of course he was kind of our guy and then wasn't our guy. <laughs> yeah. He was a bit like Saddam, you know, he was kind of a local enforcer, a local hard man that we got into bed with and then changed our minds for reasons we needn't get into right now. But yeah, he's the one example, counterexample to that. But yeah, generally speaking, the UK and, and US's involvement in Latin America has been to support the authoritarians, the Nicholas Reyes's of, of that part of the world. It certainly hasn't been to support whatever the hell Gloria Bernalde is supposed to be, because throughout the season she's sort of depicted a bit as a kind of social justice type, a bit of a human rights activist, kind of a feminist, maybe a little bit socialist, but she's also cozying up to the US. There's one bit in the show where she sat there saying, uh, she's asked about the sanctions. The one moment that they mention the US sanctions against Venezuela, it's when they're talking to this this opponent, to the, the election opponent. And she says, oh, they're, they're not sanctions against Venezuela. They're just sanctions against Nicolas Reyes. So I'm confident that if I win the election, we can resolve all of that and we can develop a good relationship with the United States. And I'm thinking that is such a complete bastardization of how these sanctions and other methods of economic warfare that the U.S. has waged against Venezuela in recent years is such a bastardization of that. Yeah. And I can't quite wrap my head around who they're aiming this show at and quite what the propaganda line is. I know I kind of summed it up in my video. I said this is about appealing to lefties and liberals and trying to make them think that the CIA in Latin America is a good thing because it's their sorts of candidates that the CIA are supporting. But I, I don't see that being especially successful on the one hand. And also, are those the sorts of people who are going to be watching this show? I mean, this second season was co-produced by Michael Bay of all <laughs> You know, he's hardly known as social justice warrior in cinema format, is he? Oh, you want to talk about one-dimensional characters, there's your guy right there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you, do, and everything. you can feel his influence in this second season, I think, because there's a lot more explosions and a lot less, you know, good stuff. Yeah, a man, a man think... who never, never turned down DOD or CIA assistance for any film. No. In fact, has Tom, actively you... sought it out for pretty much everything he's ever made. <laughs> Tom, do you think that the the two seasons of um, of Jack Ryan, which which I, I agree with you, are meant to sort of like rehabilitate the CIA as as good guys. You know, do you think it reflects or affects conversely the Trumpian moment? What I mean by that is the left, right, to the extent that it exists as a coherent monolith, has tended to be the skeptical wing of American politics, skeptical of the CIA and covert intelligence, right? Tended to be. Usually not not as radically as they ought to be, but usually. And then something happens, and, and that something was that Donald Trump got elected. And and suddenly, and I think MSNBC best demonstrates this or illustrates this phenomenon. Anybody who works in the intelligence agency, anyone who's in the CIA, because they don't like Trump, right? Especially the retired ones who get like unlimited space as talking heads on MSNBC and CNN. You know, because Trump is now being said that he's like a Russian asset and collusion and all this other nonsense. And because he's kind of at war with his own intelligence agencies, the left has like embraced the intelligence community over the last three years at a level that I really can't, even as a historian, that I can't really 
see being matched historically. And so they all became like born again intelligence hawks, the left, I mean, the, the, the mainstream liberals. And, and, and then because, so I guess my point is, it seems, and maybe it's coincidence, but most things usually aren't. It, it seems that the cinematic rehabilitation of the CIA as full of good guys doing God's work and the actual political rehabilitation of the CIA as American heroes, not to be questioned, stars on the wall heroes, it, it, they just, it's so coincidental that it, it, it has to be connected. Maybe it's not, but, but the fact that the two exist at the same time already causes us, or, or I think we should draw some sort of analogy from it or some sort of conclusions from it. Oh, I totally agree. I think it is deliberate. I think the CIA have, um, if you like, Trump's version of this or the, the right, the Trumpists' version of this is, you know, Trump versus the deep state, that they are hostile towards the CIA because they see it as some kind of, you know, anti-Trump thing, regardless of whether it is or isn't. Meanwhile, I think the CIA actually kind of quite like that piece of PR because they know that the vast majority of right-wingers ultimately ain't going to do anything about the CIA. Most of them are pro-empire and therefore kind of accept the CIA's role in that. Whereas if they can rebrand themselves to liberals and lefties, like genuine lefties rather than just sort of slightly left-leaning liberals, which you seem to have quite a lot of in America, if you can rebrand yourself to them, you've got most of the political spectrum sewn up. And like you say, it has historically been the left or at least radicals who certainly wouldn't consider themselves right wing who have opposed the FBI and the CIA and the general intelligence apparatus of the United States. And so getting them on board is a historic moment. And like you say, absolutely, this is some kind of strategy they're playing in the moment of Trump. Because we saw this as well with Black Panther, right? As far as I know, the CIA weren't actually involved in making Black Panther, but they did jump on board promoting it. They were tweeting about it during the Oscars. There's this ludicrous article on their website comparing the Black Panther technology to the CIA's technology, all kinds of stuff. It, it was like some sort of co-branding exercise rather than that they helped produce the movie. And when you watch the movie, it has similar thing to this second season of Jack Ryan in that it rebrands the CIA's role in Africa as some kind of, again, positive thing. Like they're the ones supporting the Wakandans. They're the ones supporting the good guys. That certainly isn't the CIA's real role in terms of colonialism in especially West Africa, but everywhere on the African continent, to be honest. The CIA has kind of messed things up, perhaps even worse than they have in Latin America or the Middle East, to be honest. So that film also contributed to this rehabilitation of the CIA's image and did so in a film that is much more likely to be seen by liberals and left-wingers than people who would go and see a Michael Bay film. So... I definitely think this is something the CIA like and are trying to encourage where they can. I'm not sure exactly how much influence they had on either of those products, but it's certainly something that's on their PR agenda. Because like I say, if they can get most of the political spectrum sewn up, they don't have to worry about anyone ever introducing the idea ever again that no matter how bad the CIA gets, we can't abolish them. For a while there, people were saying that. Both in the 1990s, after the Cold War, people were suggesting, do we really need a CIA anymore? And in the early 2010s, you actually got some people, even relatively mainstream commentators, suggesting, you know, has this gone too far? Do we need to 
like Kennedy said, do something, break up the CIA, turn it into a less powerful institution, because the drone program, the torture program, it all just seems to be getting completely out of hand. So this has come up a few times, and like I say, if they can get all of those different people across the spectrum on board, they just don't have to worry about that kind of talk anymore. The superhero angle gives them a really good way to paper over those niceties for three-letter agencies. It didn't seem at all like the guy, the guy Martin Freeman played in, in Black Panther. He had an edge at all. You know, he just, he happened to be at a casino that they went to, and then he got hurt, and they came back to Wakanda, and he got healed because their special Wakandan technology could heal them. Unlike uh, CIA healers, those, those fuckers suck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but it's this it's this very light nuance i don't know what i could even call it nuance but it's just it's it seems like such an easy thing for them like you said tom after the fact they come in the cia to promote the whole thing like they were involved the whole time but it was really just modern american liberals who still see the cia as a bastion of good of somehow even if you know even if mistakes are made it's they're still on our side they're still with the quote-unquote good guys well and i think for a long time the primary way in which the cia propagandized for themselves through hollywood at least was that they were a necessary evil that the world is this horrible dangerous place full of psychotic terrorists and commies and whatever and that's why we need a cia and aren't you in fact maybe a little bit glad that you don't have to do this horrible stuff like yeah, assassinating yeah. and torturing people it's you know it takes that responsibility away from you you don't really have to think about it you've got mafioso scumbags over there dealing with it for you whereas now they very much are trying to rebrand themselves, almost like the DOD do through Hollywood. Very much as this, you know, we are a force for good in the world. We are a positive thing. You should be celebrating us. I mean, that's what Krasinski was saying in this bloody interview at the first season premiere, was that we should be grateful for the CIA and we should be celebrating them. Uh. <laughs> even, even the most kind of, I don't know, optimistic person couldn't look at the true history of the, what the CIA have done and say this is something to be celebrated. Like I say, the very best you could say, it's a necessary evil, and I certainly wouldn't even make that argument. But Krasinski's just, I mean, he's gone off the deep end. He's basically been recruited at this point as a PR spokesman for the fucking agency. Jim Halpert now works for the CIA. It's, it's kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, I liked it when he was best known for his like awkward off-screen glances and love affair with the secretary. Mm -hmm. You know, can we go back to that? Tom, I want just one last thing that's on my mind is that thing I said earlier about how sometimes fiction both uh, reflects and affects society. And I, I, I find that double-edged sword to be very interesting. And w one thing that it got me thinking about specifically with Tom Clancy, and I actually just sent an email with a 300-page dissertation to Henry so that he can forward it to your email because I don't seem to have your email saved. My friend at West Point, a very interesting guy, he's still in the Army, very bright, very different from most knuckle-dragging Army officers. He's a former intelligence guy himself, or he's still an intelligence officer. He's a major about to make lieutenant colonel. He just finished his PhD, and his dissertation is called The Good Guys Win, colon, Ronald Reagan, Fiction, and the Transformation of National Security. Now, uh, I've read it. Um, I would say you should at least read the abstract, which is a page long, and then it may, you may decide to 
dig into it a little more because it's, it's, it's stuff that you're interested in. And what Ben, I've also listened to him give speeches on C-SPAN and then also in person about his topic. And he has this like really, really unique topic. And, and, and it is this. It's a, a lot of different fiction, but his main focus, the way he started the project was Tom Clancy. That's why it's relevant to this conversation. And he argues after tr- going through the treasure trove of the Reagan library and all his speeches and stuff and all the internal memos that Reagan as an actor and as a pretty simplistic thinking good and evil guy was highly influenced specifically by Tom Clancy. Red Storm Rising, which was not made into a movie, I don't think, but published in 1986, which was about a conventional non-nuclear war between the Soviets and NATO, in which NATO wins, seriously influenced his views on like military power, military technology, how we should fund the army, how we should focus on like the big three technology or the big five technology of like the Patriot missile, the Apache, the Bradley, the tank and the Blackhawk, um, the Abrams tank and the Blackhawk. And like, if you listen to, if you Google Ben Griffin and you're going to get the dissertation, so you have his name sent to you, it's profoundly interesting how a person like Reagan, and, and there are similarities with Trump. I mean, Reagan's a better guy than Trump, but there are similarities in their like hmm. sort of like worldview. They're both sort of like celebrity presidents and all this. And, and like, it wouldn't surprise me if a guy like Trump was affected or by the fiction that he sees. You know, I mean, he's already affected by Fox and Friends, right? They basically like write his policy memos every morning. But it's really an interesting dissertation, and and it's going to come out as a book, uh, like a shorter mainstream book. But it's it shows how Red Storm Rising and then other Tom Clancy novels and then other films really affected Reagan. And I'll just give you one one other example. There was a TV movie. You've probably heard of it called um, The Day After, I want to say. Is that what it's called? It was about a fic- – it was a TV movie back when TV movies were important in the early 80s. I, I think it was called The Day After, but I'll, I'll look it up. And it I was about I a fictional – I think it – yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it, it depicts nuclear Armageddon and what life would be like. In fact, it takes place where I live. The, the main character takes place in Lawrence, Kansas. It was, in fact, it was also filmed here. Um, they like broke the windows of all the storefronts and then had to pay them for the damage in order to like film it. And the idea is like a nuclear bomb hits Kansas City as well as like every other major city. And Lawrence is like just far enough away from Kansas City to have been like devastated, but they're still survivors. And it's a very gruesome for the time. And I mean, the special effects aren't so great now, but for the time, they're very good. And Reagan watches it. And he actually said some of this stuff in public, but Ben was able to go into like his records and see what he was saying in private to his advisors. And like Reagan, who it had campaigned on the idea that you can fight and win a nuclear war, watches this movie and then like turns on a dime. And I'm sure there were other reasons, but he's clearly influenced by this movie because he cites it all the time. And then he starts saying, whoa, 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 whoa. no one wins a nuclear war. We need to negotiate with Gorbachev. And he does that 180. And it's like one of the most profound stories I've ever read. I mean, just the idea of this dissertation, it's it's so unique. The idea that fiction reflects the reality on the ground and the day, you know, that the present and also kind of has the potential, especially with the more simplistic minded lack of nuanced characters to like affect policy. And, And that is both like the treasure of fiction, what makes it beautiful but also like what can make it dangerous, right? If, if it's not done correctly. I mean, not that there's such a thing as correctly, but anyway, that's just my final point on that. Henry will, will email it to you, but dude, it's such an interesting idea. And as you were talking today, I started thinking about Ben 
and realize like this is right up your alley i think based on what the work you do oh absolutely it is no no i'll definitely read that i mean yeah the, the clancy reagan relationship is fairly widely referenced i guess in different places but it sounds like he's done a very deep dive and laced all of this together and absolutely i mean yeah uh, I've got a document from the Prime Minister's office from when Thatcher was uh, in the Prime Minister in this country, and it records a phone call between her and Reagan. And at the end of the phone call, he's talking to her, saying, "Oh, you've got to read Red Storm Rising. You've really got, you know, this this novel's really important. It will change the way you look at the Soviets and all of this kind of stuff." And apparently, he was telling his his advisors this kind of thing as well. There's a document that is on the CIA's Crest database, which is about their director giving a speech at Bohemian Grove, of all places. And he references a very similar conversation with Reagan, where Reagan's going on at him about Tom Clancy novels and how, you know, we've got to do something about the Soviets. We can't, we can't let this go on. Um, it seems that Reagan, I mean, he was a bit bonkers to begin with, and certainly later in his life, obviously suffered from some neurological disorders and what have you hard to say whether that was going on while he was president but in any case he lived in a bit of a hyper real existence he struggled to distinguish between things he'd done in movies and things he'd actually done in his military career and stuff like that so yeah it doesn't surprise me that much i guess that reagan was so influenced by clancy but it is fascinating and important that a writer who was, you know, in bed to some extent with the intelligence services and definitely big friends with the military was writing novels that made a president think, oh, we have to spend more on the intelligence services in the military, that we need to beef them up, that this is, you know, the war's coming, all this kind of, of paranoia. And of course, that n none of that ever happened. That's one of the hilarious things about Tom Clancy is that despite <laughs> how popular his novels are, pretty much everything in them is an elaborate fantasy that has never happened and likely will never happen. It's not just a kind of wish fulfillment, it's almost a kind of um, neuroses fulfillment, if you like. It's sort of titillation <laughs> for your worst fears about what might happen in the world, something like that. You know, like a, um, apocalypse movies or disaster movies are. They function a bit like that. I guess that's the attraction. But yeah, yeah, sure, send that to me. I'd love to read it. The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with somebody, anyone whom you think might be affected by it. Maybe a young person looking to join the military or parents advocating for one. Uh, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name. Advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military can create for minorities and also inflicts on minorities across the globe. And anyone else you think it might affect, please take a minute and share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and other crap I can't think of right now. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Will Lorenz. Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, 
Henry Zamoda, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you very much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt. The great Bill Kropinski did an awesome job designing our first shirt, which you can find at shop.spreadshirt.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Check for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast. I think something else that is interesting, you know, given the current landscape of media and how, you know, it's, it's just like everything in our country, it's becoming more and more monopolized. And so you have these bigger companies that, like you, you were saying in the beginning, Tom, they want to make these like lowest common denominator, easy to understand, easily accessible media. And if there is a, you know, if there's an agenda in place, then it's easy for people to buy into that. And so that, like, I think that's what is scary to me. You know, you, you mentioned the stuff in the 80s and like the fact that the day after was able to get Reagan to think about that stuff. That's that's how, and the media is how a lot of people get access to the military, get access to the intelligence community, and that's the only exposure that they have. It really bothers me because it is a vastly distorted narrative, and especially in cases like Jack Ryan and other places, and any movie that has DOD or intelligence community support, you know, they want to make sure that it is about them, and it puts them in the best light possible. I just get scared about the idea of we have these big companies that are going to make these big movies that have no nuance to them, and they continue to push the narrative of that what the establishment wants. That's really scary to me to think of in the future. One more, just two, two quick things. Clancy, of course, was an insurance salesman, right? Like an insurance agent mm-hmm. and before he started writing novels, which I just think is interesting. It doesn't mean he, it doesn't, mean he doesn't write you know, effectively or anything, but I just think that's fascinating that he like inherits this like insurance company from his, I think his wife's family and has the, you know, the financial security and the space to like start writing novels like an amateur, you know, and then gets it. But you say he like a lot of his fantasies, they never come true. And they're just that they're like almost a neuroses, but you know, they're, they're, they're neuroses that like serve the military industrial complex because Red Storm Rising, the thesis is clear that that is possible. And that we can win a conventional war without the Soviets going nuclear, right? Without them on the losing end deciding to go nuclear. These are both fantasies, but they served a particular purpose. In this case, not the intelligence agency so much. They served the armed forces, particularly the army. Because after Vietnam, here's the historian to me again, the army is like largely discredited as an institution. It has lots of drug problems. The draft is gone. Lowest common denominator is joining. People are saying that we really even need a big army anymore. You know, they lost Vietnam and it's not going well. Recruitment is down. And, you know, what we really need is like the nuclear force as a deterrent and like intelligence people to stop terrorists around the world. We don't really need an army. Well, the army needs you to believe that they have a purpose, right? And clearly defending America against Canada is not it, but <laughs> fighting the Soviets in Central Europe is. And if 
that war can be fought and won by a te- technologically uh, advanced and well-funded army, then the, then the, the, you know, the faucet is going to be turned on at the Pentagon for the army in particular. So this is also well-written about, but I think it's fascinating because Red Storm Rising reflects and affects that. Some of all fears is, is the, you know, like you said, nuclear terrorism, this, this, this idea, this neurosis of, of fear of nuclear terrorism. I mean, it sounds really scary. It's never happened. It hasn't come that close. I think the Khan thing in Pakistan, closest thing to it, but it really was a lot of smoke and mirrors and it never really developed that fully. But A.Q. Khan, the uh, Pakistan nuclear scientist who allegedly talked to Al-Qaeda. But anyway, um, this idea of a terrorist group getting a, a, a dirty bomb or a, a nuclear bomb, I should say, is the wet dream of the intelligence and the military industrial complex because it's the it's the threat it's the existential threat that justifies everything else that they do and cheney called this so i think some of all fears is also useful also reflex and affects cheney called this notion the one percent doctrine um and a book was written on it called by ron, ron suskin great fucking book that just got like lost in the bush era deluge of anti-bush books but this was the best and what cheney said to advisors or someone yes important people right he said um let me tell you this. He said, if there's even a 1% chance that Al-Qaeda is working with Pakistan to develop a, a nuclear weapon for Al-Qaeda, if there's even a 1% chance of that, we have to treat it as a 100% fact. And this is a very dangerous notion, <laughs> as you can imagine. So I think some of all fears does for the general military industrial complex, and especially the intelligence community, what Red Storm Rising does for like the Army and the Marine Corps. You know, And, and anyway, I just... I just think it's a really interesting thing, and we're off on a tangent, but it's just like we're talking about Jack Ryan, but then you realize like the entire series, the entire fictional universe of Jack Ryan has been this like profound cultural and also political touchstone, and I, I just think that's really cool. That's why I think your work is so cool, because it's, it's, it, it may seem abstract compared to like what you read in Politico, but it's also like way more interesting and equally important. Well, thanks, <laughs> I just have to throw this out there. Diddy, you, you explaining the one percenter thing reminded me of Dumb and Dumber when the lady's trying to explain to Lloyd that his chances of being with her, given that she's married, is like one in a million. And he gets the big old smile and say, you're, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> that's and, my favorite part. That's my, that you're telling and, me there's a chance. And that's, and that's exactly where this is, you know, is that essentially Cheney saying that is like, well, it can be anywhere between point zero 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 one chance and 100%. I mean, that's obviously not the whole number, but that microscopic amount. And, you know, we're off to deployments, you know, the sending in black ops teams and all kinds of other bullshit. It, yeah, absolutely. It, it, I mean, just, it, it, it affected American policy for eight years under Bush. And I mean, it still does, of course. No, it's just, it's just but it but hearing things like that, I'd never heard that before. That really gives you a window into somebody like Dick Cheney and how he his his wheels with the, working with the CIA kept spinning in this direction. I will say just one quick thing before we move on to something else. But uh that book you mentioned, The 1% Doctrine by Ron Suskind, I agree, very, very good book. Interestingly, it's actually listed as a CIA-supported project <laughs> in, in a, on a document I have. I don't know how much support they gave Really? Me. You know, access for a few interviews and things, and then Ron Suskind just said, fuck it, I'm going to go write the book I wanted to write. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, in, interestingly, it is, it is listed there. So That is so bizarre. <laughs> Interesting. So uh, moving along a little bit here, I, I had a I made a comment in my notes about 
Jack Ryan's military experience for this series. And that in the first episode, he goes to Venezuela with uh, a senator, but the senator is actually his former commanding officer in Afghanistan. And Jack, his entire unit was killed by a suicide bomber, minus him. And he got evacuated to, to Launstall in Germany during the war. And according to what he said that the the commanding officer visited him there every day for three months. I don't know how he did that on deployment, but yeah, I get I get the idea they were trying to make, you know, that he he want, was part of it. But it as we you know we watch I watch more and more stuff. You see this suicide bomber dialogue about people's military service and fiction a lot more often than it actually happened in real life. You know, this is I mean it, it it's a awful awful thing i was in iraq when we had huge huge suicide bombings that did you know that you know someone's squad you know they might have had a 12-man squad and it killed the the majority of them but it's not something that's so common that it should just be injected everywhere but it does present a very specific picture it shows you know this person obviously is tough he's went through some very tough times not that i mean not that's in reality but i get what they're they're trying to write it up about but especially with having him connected with his former commanding officer, because that just doesn't happen very often in military. I don't know about intelligence circles as much. And then at the end of that episode, Jack sees his commanding officer get shot by uh, somebody doing dirty, dirty stuff down in, in Venezuela. And that's kind of the, the catalyst for the rest of the season. Danny, I know, you know, you, you and I have experiences about what happens when someone you care about gets hurt and you're in a in dire straits for you and i it was being a combat for jack here as he was down in venezuela but immediately when something like that would happen he didn't escort the body home back to the states he asked to stay and immediately i'm like strike one you're telling me that these guys were marines they served together this man is dead and you're as his friend as his compatriot somehow you're not going to take that trip that all of us would take given the opportunity when we were deployed, it wasn't it usually wasn't an option, but they really sunk into me both that they were willing to kill his commanding officer in the first episode of the season. I don't know how much he was in the first season. And then that he's continuing on because we, 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 we all know that just doesn't happen in terms of when death happens in real life for people in government. Uh, just a couple of thoughts on that. The first is that uh, this character doesn't appear in season one at all. He's very okay. much, okay. he's a disposable character. He's brought in so he can be assassinated. That, that makes so. it even worse. <laughs> yeah, which, yeah, which really is even worse. They did nothing to set this up in any way in season one. The other is that the DOD supported this second season. They didn't support the first season. They turned it down for various reasons. But there's there's a lot of big military hardware in this second season. They clearly got it from the DOD. And I'm a little bit surprised they let that in there. But like you say, the whole connection between these two is essentially their military service. Yeah. That's supposed to be why they have this bond. That's supposed to be why Jack cares so much that his friend has been killed. But to treat that in such a disposable way, and like you say, to have our protagonist, he gives so much of a shit that he launches on this massive globe-trotting quest for revenge, but doesn't care enough to maybe go to a funeral or... You know, it's sort of, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, and it's not very realistic in terms of, like you say, people who've actually been in that kind of a situation. And I'm a little bit surprised the DOD just 
let that one slip through. I'm, I mean, I'm trying to get the documents out of them for what kind of script input they had, and I'll, I'll keep an eye out and see if there's anything in there about that. Because it might be just that, you know, as per usual, the entertainment liaison office is about the most callous thing on the planet. And they just, they don't actually understand the real human experience of being in the military at all. Did they change the backstory, didn't they, for Jack Ryan's service? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but in Hunt for the Red October, they were upset that he's wearing like the naval uniform. And then the admiral says, oh, you don't know his backstory, though. Um, he was like in a plane or a helicopter crash while he was at the Naval Academy, was I think the backstory. He wasn't a combat veteran. Like he was, I think he was like going to be a Marine out of the Naval Academy, but like during summer training, like I'll, I'll double check it, but I'm like almost sure he was not a combat veteran. He had like broke his back in a crash, like non-combat yeah, related. Yeah. But which they, I guess reflects the 80s more. Yeah, I mean, they updated because in the 80s, there weren't like wars he could have really fought in, except like maybe Granada. So I, I guess maybe that was like, it worked more. But like today, obviously, he had to be like an Afghanistan veteran. But I just thought that was interesting that they updated the story and changed it around. But no, it, you know, I, I, I had thought he might have been in, in the first season at least a little bit. So that the, adding to that, Tom, the disposable nature of that, you know, it really, to me, it's an insult as, as someone who served that way, that they, you know, would not take a little bit better time with trying to figure that out. And I think they, maybe they made the assumption that because the senator died, okay, well, we want the story to continue right on. What's Jack going to do next? Oh, he's going to go after these bastards. That makes sense because that's what the show is about. But it really, it really, it really took me completely out of it. I mean, not that I was I was bought into it in the first place, but in terms of just watching the show, and it was just left me shaking my head, like who who saw this, you know? Sure, they... sure. The the emotional resonance is all wrong, and and like you say, yeah, they they want to keep the story going. They want to keep Jack in Venezuela. Okay, I kind of get that, but surely they could have thrown in a few little flashbacks showing that he, you know, went back on the plane with the body or attended a funeral or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, you don't actually have to portray the whole damn thing because that takes a whole episode to do, but you could at least chuck in a reference or two to that just to establish, you know, the bond between these two men that's supposed to form kind of the basis for the whole plot line. It's just sort of disrespectful to everyone, but especially to people who've been in the military and actually been in that kind of a situation. I mean, it's, it's also just sort of insulting to the audience's intelligence and their sense mm -hmm. of humanity as well. But it's, it, it, like I say, especially so for guys like you. So um, we move forward a bit. I think we're into episode two now. And they're doing an interrogation of a police captain who was part of the escort that was protecting the, the senator and Jack when he got killed. And they're, they're, they're doing their best to make him seem as shitty and messed up a person as as one might imagine in this this kind of circumstance which wasn't at all true he told the guys as he was being interrogated that he didn't know what the guys were going to do he didn't get you know like paid for it they just asked him to turn it a different spot and opsec wise that's just you know all kinds of red flags going on there but again this is a different country and a different way of doing things so i don't feel like they gave any room for, the, for that part of it and then they have jack as part of the interrogation, as his, his, his friend, his boss, the senator just died, and now he's in a room with, with this guy. He's not the one interrogating him. And then he screams at him. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, interrogation-wise, 
where is his sense of professionalism? You know, I understand that he's really upset and everything and that he believes this captain is involved, but he works for the fucking CIA. Is, is, is it, is what, what kind of control are we supposed to believe that, you know, that, that these officers, if they're supposed to be upstanding professional people and screaming at someone messing up their interrogation, they don't need uh, to, to torture anybody to do it. You just got to talk to the guy, but it's about talking to the person, right? The one at the moment you hurt them or even in this case, scream at them, you may throw all that out the window. They may feel disrespected at that point. They, you know, they may have more backstory, in this case, or just background that demonstrates why they ended up where they ended up for the story. I'd not really dwelt on that moment, but you're right. And it is kind of completely out of character for what we're supposed to understand Jack Ryan to be. Mm -hmm. Okay, he's a, he's a, analyst who has somehow ended up in the field that is the jack ryan character arc okay but we're always told he's really smart right mm -hmm. his superpower is his brain this is a talking point they pushed out a lot in the promotion for this series because obviously they're trying to make it seem a bit like a superhero thing well his superpower isn't his brain in that scene he no. just loses control and like you're saying in an interrogation i mean there's various different tactics that can work in an interrogation but one thing that is particularly the case with intelligence officers, uh, and this is true whether you're talking about handling a source or interrogating a suspect or whatever, is that you have to make them feel you're the authority, you're, you mm -hmm. have the power, you have the control. If you just lose your control and shout at them, where's your authority? Why do they have any reason to think, oh yeah, yeah, I can open up to this guy and he, he seems important, so I guess I do need to tell him the truth. There's none of that, he's just thrown no. all of that away. And, and like you say, why, why is he even in the interrogation in the first place? He's this, you know, upset, traumatized guy who's just lost his close friend and his sort of long-standing friend. It doesn't make any sense for him to even be there. And again, it sort of speaks to how they dumbed it down in the second season. That I mean, the Jack Ryan of the first season is actually quite smart. He outwits people. He figures things out. That's kind of how the plot is driven forward. In the second season, he's much more like Jack Bauer from 24. He's just sort of running around unhinged. Who does he even answer to? What is he even trying to do half the time? He's just on this kind of violent, fast-paced adventure. Yeah. And he, he is kind of, he kind of loses it. I mean, right at the end of, of season two, he just goes off on his own and tries to kill Reyes. He tries to assassinate the president of Venezuela. And it is a bit like, this. this isn't this super intelligent, you know, calculating can always think one step further than his opponent kind of guy that we're told Jack Ryan is. He just becomes this generic action hero who kills things and shouts at people. Michael Bay shows his face again. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hey, fellas, I'm actually going to have to jump off too because um, I finally do have to go pick up Sam now. Before I go, just because it's fun, can I tell like a two-minute Reagan story about fiction and Reagan, just one more that I thought of? Sure. Uh, just because it's cool and people should hear it. You may know about this story, Tom, but I think most Americans don't remember. Reagan loved to give very inspirational speeches about the military, especially about military heroism. He played with soldiers very often in his career, even though he was never in combat. He was like a public affairs officer. But on the campaign trail and then as president, numerous times he told this same story of like – and he would like use this story of heroism and sacrifice as like an analogy for America being a shining, shining city on the hill, which he always said. The story goes like this. World War II, bomber run, there's a bomber pilot and his crew going over Germany, 
going to bomb the Germans. And they take flak. They take anti-aircraft fire. Plane is disabled. It's going down. Everyone grabs their parachutes. But one of the youngest crewmen, like one of the gunners, is not only wounded, but he's pinned down somehow under equipment. And he can't, he can't get out. He's not going to be able to get out. He's not going to be able to put a chute on. He's not going to be able to get out. And in Reagan's telling of this story, the bomber pilot, the officer, the lieutenant or the captain says, son, I'm going to stay with you and we're going to ride this thing down together. And he commits suicide, essentially, so that this guy doesn't have to die alone. It's a great story. Reagan tells it numerous times. And there's only one problem. It never happened. There's no such story, right? There's no such documented story. So people started trying to research it. Well, where is the president getting this from? Was it from one of his movies? Because sometimes he would tell stories that were from his movies. No, it's not from his movies. No one knows where the heck it comes from until someone in the media figures out that that exact story was in a Reader's Digest, okay? There was a fiction, you know, you used to be able to write fictional short stories in Reader's Digest. And so in one, during Reagan's youth or during his, like, you know, formative years after the war, he read this fake story. And, and either he knew it was fake or he thought it was nonfiction. And he repeats the story. Even after he was told it's not real, he keeps telling the story and he keeps saying it's real. And it reminds me of Trump in the sense that, like, Trump told that ludicrous story about John Pershing, you know, dipping 50 bullets uh, in, in pig's blood and then ex executing 49 Muslims with the dirty pig's blood and then letting one of them go to go tell his friends what's going to happen if they continue to resist the Americans. And, of course, that, that never happened either. And he kept repeating it even after they told him. Anyway, my last story on, on fiction, how it reflects and affects reality. And, Tom, thanks so much. You guys can keep talking, but I do have to run. And, yeah, thanks again. Take care, brother. See you, bro. So uh, going back to what you were talking about, Tom, about Jack just being kind of out doing whatever he wanted to do, I was immediately struck by that just before in that ep second episode before he got to that container yard. I was thinking, you know, is that he's not stationed here as a as an employee of the CIA. Does he speak Spanish? Does he know where the fuck he is in a city the size of Caracas? Or what they're, you know, whatever they had, it was Bogota or whatever standing they had mm. for it. And it just, and, and again, with the whole, the intelligence level of, of Jack Ryan, I understand he's upset, but it's, why does he think that this is going to net him the, the results he wants? And I think it's just, it, it seems like it's entirely revenge driven, you know, at least the, the parts that I saw. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. I don't recall... It's one of the problems with this second season is that it's primarily driven by emotion and being very fast-paced. A lot happens very quickly. In terms of explaining why any of these people are doing any of this stuff, it does a really piss-poor job. And yeah, on the whole, Jack Ryan's character in this second season is just a man out for revenge. Like, you know, every every guy in everything ever. <laughs> there, yeah. seems to be an awful, there seems to be an awful lot of revenge in popular culture these days. Well, and, and so are we supposed to, like, be okay with that? Are we supposed to, like, root for that? You know, that's what really bothered me, too. And, I mean, I think one of the hallmarks of bad writing is often when, you know, good writing is when characters carry the plot, you know, and make decisions that affect the plot. And bad writing is when the plot just moves because of reasons. You know, it's just like, oh, this thing happened, and then this other thing happened, and then, like, oh, isn't that crazy? And it's like, that's just terrible writing. No, I know what you mean when it's just the world is happening to people. Yeah, it's, paper that, boats, not... right? That's the argument? Or that's the, like, metaphor? They're paper boats just yeah. hanging yeah. out on the water. 
this season very much suffers from that. Whereas in the first season, it is very much more character driven. Yes. You can people actually have motivations, and you you kind of understand them and can see where they're coming from, and even quite like some of these people. In the second season, it's much more uh, divisive. It's much more functional. It's just oh, we need Jack to be here at this point, so he gets a phone call from someone, and that's why he goes here, and then he has to chase this person, and then oh right, he finds out that, so now he has to go here, and there's there isn't anywhere near the same kind of emotional investment, and there isn't the same kind of momentum to it. It very much felt like, aside from the propaganda message, aside from this rewriting of the CIA's history in Latin America and this rebranding and rehabilitation of the CIA's image that we've been talking about, they didn't actually have an awful lot. There's an awful lot of kind of filler in between the, the propagandistic moments. Um, and most of that filler consists of car chases, gunfights, people running along rooftops, stuff like that, which... Okay, I mean, yeah, there is an audience out there for it, but at this point, hasn't everyone already seen all of this? I mean, you were mentioning, I think, before about how so much of this second season appears to have just been lifted from clear and present danger. That whole, <laughs> yes. that whole ambush sequence at the start is absolutely almost shot for shot from clear and present danger. They also lifted the rooftop chase sequence from the most recent Mission Impossible film, and that also in London. And in, I think in Mission Impossible, it was in London as well. They lifted the senior CIA guy gets kidnapped and has to play dead in order to escape. They lifted that from season four of Homeland. Um, <laughs> seriously, that's exactly what happens to Saul Berenson in season four of oh, Homeland. Yeah. And, and when he's in the cell, he's playing dead. So the guard comes in and then he ambushes the guard. Same, exact same scenario. It was very, very unoriginal, this second series, um, this second season. I'm really... I think they were struggling for something other than just, oh, we've got this kind of Venezuela propaganda hook. That's great. So the CIA are happy. Now what the hell are we going to fill the rest of this six hours of television with? And yeah. ended up with kind of a bunch of guff, really, on the whole. Yeah, just the, the, the continued extension of, of his being out doing things that would be entirely out of the realm for an analyst. It, it just, every, every turn, just like shaking my head, like, what the fuck is this? There was a moment a little bit later where Jack Bryan and his friend from the earlier season, James Greer, is that his name? Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're in the office with the chief of station and they're in Caracas, the CIA chief of station, which essentially is, he is the man in charge there. Anything that happens in that place involving the CIA, it goes through him. And so Ryan had gotten a thumbstick earlier that allowed him to get some surveillance on Reyes's number two. Was, I don't remember if he was a general or vice president, exactly what his position was. And then this, the chief of station asked Ryan, he says, who, who is this person that gave this to you? And he tells him she's a confidential source. And I used to have sources when I was on the drug team at Fort Lewis working for the CID. And it's not nearly as big or as flashy as anything that would happen in in a in a movie but for me to tell that to my boss i would be done i would just i wouldn't i wouldn't have that job anymore they would have sent me back to a line and b company on the next trip to iraq as quickly as humanly possible <laughs> and and again this is the guy that he 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 gets to vet everything he's the one that sees everything and you're telling him you won't do that he, his his answer was i'm the goddamn cos and i was like yes you are. You're the guy that should be in charge. Jack Ryan's not even fucking stationed. In exactly. <laughs> and, he's, and you're telling this guy off 
And I'm like, oh, fuck. And I was like, the rest of the season could have ended right there, dude. You're fired. You're going back to the States. <laughs> Go mourn for your friend. But you were done. I'm sorry. And and it just and, – and, and, you know, it fits in little 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 slivers of, you know, the – the hardened American dude pushing back against his bosses. I really have to do this. This is what's going on. But it, to me, it co- just comes off as disrespectful and useless. It just it, it doesn't have a point. And so, uh, yeah, I, 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 what do you guys think about that? I mean, CIA stations are supposed to operate a little bit like embassies operate. You know, people do their tours there. Yeah. They do their, you know, however many years or months it is. And normally what happens is when someone leaves, or particularly someone senior leaves, they have to hand over all of their sources, their Mm -hmm. agents or assets that Mm -hmm. they're running, to their replacement. And they introduce them to them and they hope that, you know, the replacement can carry on the relationship. Mm -hmm. That's actually how it operates. If you read, you know, real CIA history, that's how they do it. So the Mm -hmm. notion that Jack Ryan would be running a confidential source in a country where he's not even posted... (laughs) running illegal surveillance on the high official of the Venezuelan government (laughs) and just refusing to tell his boss how or why he's doing this. But the guy is not his boss, because like you say, he's not stationed there. I mean, the whole thing is totally nuts. And his whole cover is, oh, I'm working for this senator. And it's like, the fucking senator, and it's like, the Senate is not above the CIA. I mean, they're, they're separate. But they're not like, it's not like some senator can go in and be like, oh, hey, this is my guy. Um, give him everything he wants and be okay with that. Yeah, like, there's that no way. fucking way that's how it works. No, I mean, in as much as they, they did very much change the Jack Ryan character in the second season, I did wonder if another thing they were trying to do is a little bit of rehabilitation of the notion of the rogue agent. Because that's effectively yeah. what Jack Ryan is in this second season. Yeah, yeah. He's, not, he's not really following orders or answering to anyone. He's just beaten to the tune of his own drum. And this is something they did quite a lot in Homeland as well. Carrie Matheson yeah. notoriously just goes off the reservation and does whatever the hell she likes, which is often totally batshit crazy. And you think, God, if you actually did that, people would get killed. And, you know, there'd probably actually be a Senate inquiry. And they also give her explanation because she is dealing with some pretty serious mental health issues. And it's like, so at least she has some motivation for it. But here again, it's just, oh, I have to do this one thing. And there's not really any concrete reasoning or logic that you can find. Mm. So you know what I mean? I think they are sort of trying to rebrand that notion of the, the wild CIA agent who doesn't answer to his boss and doesn't follow orders is again now somehow a good thing. I'm pretty sure it isn't. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. So the last note I have today was on when Jack goes in towards the end of that second episode and he actually meets with President Reyes, him and the, the ambassador and uh, who was it? Jim Greer went with him too, who also just magically happens to hop a plane from just being assigned in Russia to come all the way to Venezuela on a hunch of his own. Not that that needs much more analysis, but that's essentially what he's doing. And we go back into that place where there's absolutely no pretense of professionalism or government secrecy when Jack decides to tell Reyes that he knows that he killed his senator friend. Because, you know, it's that there could be all kinds of stuff going on in the country. I, would, I was thinking the ambassador was going to lose her shit. And, and, and again, he didn't, he didn't say it loud enough so everybody could hear it. It was just him and Reyes. But that really takes the whole intelligence of Jack Ryan out of the question. Because 
at least you need to know that the right people need to be talking to them and you can't just go say that to a president no matter how fucking awful they are you know mm -hmm. we've, we've had cia relationships with the worst of the worst i'm sure they weren't allowed to go in and talk to him about what they thought personally would happen you have to keep your shit together and clearly it just shows i don't think jack ryan has any shit left to keep together <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, if anything, in this second season, he actually comes across as a maybe a, a fairly realistic portrayal of someone who is seriously mentally unwell. Yeah. Even though it's never referred to. This is all, you know, they're running around the jungle chopping people's fingers off and then sticking them in the fridge, which is kind of the behavior of a serial killer or a psychopath. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> But that's all just sort of treated like, oh, it's kind of normal when these divorced guys get together in Latin America or in the CIA station. That's, this is just the kind of japes they get up to. Uh, it really is crazy in, in some places this second season as to what the hell they were trying to do and what kind of reaction they expected people to have to this. Because aside from people going, oh, yeah, it was so exciting. It's amazing. I can't wait for season three. I haven't seen any positive responses to this. I certainly haven't seen people go, oh, right, this actually made me rethink what was going on in Venezuela. This is actually helping me understand the world in any way. I imagine there are quite a few people out there. I just haven't seen it at all. Maybe those people just aren't expressing their opinions. I don't know. But yeah, yeah, crazy stuff, crazy character. Um, yeah. And not in a sort of sympathetic, you know, you feel sorry for this person because they're mentally ill kind of way, but more in a sort of they should probably be locked up kind of a way. Now, I, I could understand if following the senator's death that he's jack's back at the embassy just going ape shit and 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 pulling the paint peeling the paint off the walls while the people there are trying to calm him down or at least keep him contained that would make some kind of sense we just saw his friend died you know he's down he came down here he's thinking of all the all the different different pieces of intel that might fit into this but instead here, here's a car, go off into a place you don't know with the language that you don't speak. And I think that, you know, it, it, going back to the, you know, the American tough guy notion of it is that they they still want that narrative to have, have some worth. That, you know, that person who goes off the reservation on homeland, it's good. You know, America is better off because they went off the reservation in that way. In real life, it would never, ever happen. You'd be back on the plane home with no more prospects in, in government, if, if anywhere else. Well, it's just that trope, you know, that trope yeah. of like, well, like, oh, th we need those people because they're going to buck the rules because the rules are wrong sometimes. Yep. And it's like... Rules hold uh. us back. <laughs> well, and in season one, didn't we find out there was this whole thing about uh, why did Jim Greer get sent home from, uh, I think he was in Pakistan. And there's sort of these stupid rumors about, again, dipping bullets in pig's blood and throwing people out of windows and all mm -hmm. kinds of other stuff that is are clear references to things we've read about in the news in various places whether true or otherwise but it then turns out oh no it was just that some operation went bad and a guy tried to kill him so he had to shoot a guy and that's why he got recalled to Langley and that's why he got dumped in TFAD the sort of terrorist financing investigation division or whatever the hell they are and that's seen very much as a demotion as you know his career is now screwed mm -hmm. well in the second season him and Jack Ryan do far worse than that about 20 times over 
<laughs> and it just seems like there's no consequence at all oh. for any, if anything they're welcomed as heroes for overthrowing the venezuelan government and going ape shit and trying to kill him um, that part I mean, when it's... they'd storm the, the friggin palace and like start killing the guards i'm like there would be a fucking like international furor <laughs> over that no i know what you mean imagine if that actually happened in real life it would be it would I mean, I guess they'd probably just get away with it ultimately, but there would at least be a scandal and there would at least be some kind of, you know, media repercussion, if not any real world criminal repercussion for that. It would but, be something they'd have to paper over a lot. Yeah, but they would probably yeah, um, yeah. manage it. But I, I'm just saying, again, it's sort of the departure from the first season to the second season is quite extraordinary in terms of the kind of underlying morality of it, in terms of the crudeness of the propaganda, and just in terms of what they've done with these characters. In the first season, they actually seemed like CIA officers. In the second season, they seem like psychotic criminals on the loose. They seem like terrorists. Like, you know, genuine terrorists. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it already got approved for, uh, got a renewal for season three. So we're defi definitely going to have more Jack Ryan. Tom, unfortunately, I am out of time for today. Before we, uh, we get off here, will you please tell the fine folks where they can find your work? Well, I mean, pretty much everything I do is on spyculture.com. I do have a YouTube channel and a Medium blog and a whole bunch of other stuff. I do have some social media that I don't really use, but you're better off just going to spyculture.com. Alrighty, sounds good. Well, thank you, uh, thank you so much for being with us today, and I uh, hope we do it again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always great to be talking to you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill. And also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at Patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not do.